Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. I talked about how I wanted to introduce some ideas, some methods, some practices, some exercises that would help an individual sort through the mess of the purity culture narrative and could help a person learn how to embody their erotic self and kind of recalibrate what they know about their sexual identity, examining their sexual orientation, evolving an erotic epiphany. And so today I wanted to talk about one of the major tools that is often used to perpetuate these fear-based narratives. And that tool is called shame. And with shame follows judgment. Now, Brene Brown is the go-to guru for understanding how to smash shame. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just take from her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, and just kind of read to you and remind you what shame feels like. That way we just have a better understanding of when we're experiencing shame. So first she says, shame is about fear, blame, and disconnection, and that shame is a full contact emotion. Men and women with high levels of shame resilience know when shame is happening. The easiest way to know shame is to cultivate an awareness of our physical shame symptoms. Brene Brown puts it like this, quote, I know that I'm struggling with shame when that warm wash of inadequacy comes over me. My heart races, my face feels hot, my mouth gets dry, my armpits tingle, and time slows down. It's important to know our personal symptoms so that we can get deliberate in our response to shame. End quote. So that is shame brought to you by Brene Brown. That's what it feels like, and I'm sure you can relate to that. Now, when we talk about judgment, I want to defer to Gabrielle Bernstein and her book, And I really appreciate what she has to say about what judgment looks like. And so from her book, Judgment Detox, Gabrielle writes this. Behind the wall of judgment lie our deepest feelings of inadequacy and shame. When we feel separate from others, our shame is triggered. We feel alone, not good enough, unworthy of love and connection. Shame is the most difficult emotion to accept and will do anything to avoid feeling it. And we resist it by projecting it onto others through judgment. And then we grow to rely on judgment as a way of finding relief from our wounds. The first step in healing our shame and letting down our guard is to accept that we are not the victim of the world we see appreciate about Bernstein is she brings to light something that we often don't think about, that we don't consider, that we're not willing to share with the rest of humanity. And that's this. At its core, our judgment all looks the same. The fear is the same. The wound is the same. 
So now when we go back to the purity culture narratives and the different tools that have been used to implement all of these ideas, all of these narrow ideas about sexuality, what do you notice? Shame and judgment. Different prescriptions are doled out to us by use of shame. So if I don't want teenagers to have sex, I make it dirty. I shame people for it. If I don't want women to dress a certain way, I make a certain way of dress dirty and I shame it. And then we create these narratives and these judgments and we pass them off as our good Christian way of doing things. And we get into this habit of shaming of the body, shaming of a woman's physical forms, shaming of sexuality, shaming of same sex and queer orientations. So there's this trend. That's what we do. We shame in the Christian religion. I'm sure it's prevalent in other religious beliefs as well. And so we need to tackle the shame, right? So we know what it looks like. We know what it makes us feel like. And we can see something here. Again, what Gabrielle Bernstein says, Shame is that feeling that comes to surface when we feel separate from others. And we don't like that feeling. And so we project it onto other people in a form of judgment. So isn't that interesting? Shame is something we feel for ourselves. Judgment is the shame we project onto others. The reason religion does this, projects the judgments on people who act shamefully, is because maybe there's a fear of feeling separate from others in these sexual actions that some people do and other people don't. Doesn't that make a lot of sense when we really think about it? Why the purity culture uses these narratives? It's just a lack of understanding. It's a fear of feeling separate. And so when someone feels separate from somebody else's sexual practices, we heap shame on them. How do you deprogram from that? How do you pull that shame rot out of the system. Shame roots itself deep into the core of how we interact with all people. It kind of creates a little film over the essence of who we are erotically. And so we want to learn how to chisel that away. Shame can do a lot of damage to the core erotic essence of who we are. So layers of shame, fear, and lies are poured over us like concrete. And when we finally find a chisel to start chipping away, the lies are very easily unearthed. Those are easy to chisel away at, right? Those are just little flaky pieces of slate that we can brush off. It's the shame that's anchored in our foundation that we have a real hard time loosening up. And so when we dig down to the core of our erotic essence, it requires that we learn how to love and accept ourselves for who we are right now in this moment. Purity narratives often teach that even love for the self is selfish. Like, we're to give all the glory to God, even for this body. There's no love for yourself. You can't love yourself. You have to love God. And somehow, we're supposed to know that loving God is different and separate than loving our body. And loving our body isn't what God wants of us. And so God gets all the credit for everything that we navigate through life. And we can't love our bodies. And in fact, women need to hide their bodies and, and be modest and cover things up and to make sure to not elicit sexual lustful ideas in men should they pass them by and they see a curve of her body, right? And so again, rejecting these ideas, we can go, this is stupid. Like, I don't, I don't agree with these ideas. I don't believe that about women, you know, and I don't believe that I should hate my body. But 
if we've been under this inundation of this ignorant concept and shame has just been poured over us, it's really, really hard to make sure that we dig it all out of all of the components of our lives. And while it may not present in our day-to-day interactions and we feel confident, but maybe in the bedroom in front of our spouse, ladies, maybe you were like me once and you didn't want to be naked in front of your husband. You didn't want him to see all of that. That doesn't mean that I don't love myself, but I just haven't, hadn't worked out that part that was embarrassed or felt like what I was presenting was good enough. And so, again, this goes back to these shame ideas, you know, even this idea that loving my body is not selfish is really hard to wrap my head around, right? And, and mothers, I bet, you know, parents can relate to this, right? In that sometimes we feel selfish for wanting to give ourselves self-care, right? Like, even if that means like, I need 20 minutes in the bathtub. I don't want a kid or a cat to come in. I don't want a husband to be like, what are you doing again? You know what I mean? Like, we... We feel guilty for setting aside time just for ourselves because we signed up for these roles to play. We're the wife and we're the mother. That, that would be selfish, right? Because again, this shame idea. And that stems into these ideas of being what a husband expects and not asking questions and submitting and letting him be the boss and letting him be the teacher in the bedroom and letting letting his libido run the schedule of the sex and realizing that it's only about his pleasure and your pleasure is, you know, an added bonus should you not selfishly require any further energy attention because you know he has to get up and go to work and he has responsibility and and he takes care of you so you don't need an orgasm right and so again all of these ideas they trickle down and root themselves into all of these different ways in which we interact even the idea of maybe maybe i i feel like this sometimes i want to just I am feeling myself and I want to dress up and I want to put on something beautiful and maybe hugging my body and because I'm appreciating myself and I get dressed and I do my makeup and I think, God dang, I look sexy. And then I take it off and I put jeans and a sweatshirt on and I feel a little sexier because I throw some high heels on. Right. And I start second guessing myself and I start thinking about what are all these women gonna say if I walk into the bar just like this what are these men gonna think and then I'm responsible for their thoughts and this was before I was like hey I'm not responsible for the thoughts of anybody actually I'm responsible for my own thoughts but again these purity narratives trickle down and we don't think about it until we catch ourselves and go and so then the next time you dress up You decide you're going to wear that sexy dress to the high school reunion instead of playing it low-key with a slit skirt and just a plain old navy blouse like I did. I had this beautiful pink, form-fitting, tight, snug, beautiful, bustier-looking 
silky dress with lace and spaghetti straps and I looked good. Y'all, I was like, I am going to this reunion and I'm looking like I barely changed. I wanted to, but then I started thinking about what other women would say and what other men would say and how other people would respond to my husband allowing this, right? And so that goes back, my husband allowing me to wear this dress, right? And so that goes back into those ideas that the husband is the head of the household and I submit to him and I need his permission for everything. And I end up feeling responsible for the thoughts of other people. And and we get into that, don't we? Where we have to take responsibility for the perceived thoughts that we think other people are going to think about us. And like somehow we feel like we have to make sure that they don't think those thoughts. So we have to be more mindful about ourselves and you know, and that that trickles into these ideas where like a woman who is dressed a certain way should not be left alone in a room with another man that is not her husband because there's an assumption that because she's dressed a certain way, that must mean that she's thinking a certain thing and that she's attracting a certain kind of invitation from this other man. And I mean, these things, they just go and they go and they go and they go and they go and we don't realize it. And so we need to stop and pull back. And number one, we need to stop thinking that we have to be responsible for the thoughts of other people. I wrote an article about this. Like women's bodies are not responsible for the thoughts of other people, right? Like my body and who I am, I don't have to take responsibility for the way you're viewing me. I don't have to take responsibility for the things that you are thinking in your head. You don't get to tell me that the way that I am dressed is making you feel a certain way because the way that I'm dressed only makes me feel a certain way. Not you. The way that you feel about how I dress, you are responsible for the way that you're feeling. And that has a lot to do with your context. And I bet that has a lot to do with your programming. And I bet that has a lot to do with you feeling separate from me. If I'm dressing this way and you don't find it appropriate, that means that you feel separate. If I am hanging out with another man, which I do all the time without my husband, and none of it ever leads to sex, if you are feeling something about that, which I have had people tell me, like I have had people tell me I have feelings about seeing you out in town lunching with other men that are not your husband. And I have a feeling about the way that you dress when you are lunching with these other men that are not your husband. And I have to say, look, hey, you have all these feelings, but I'm not responsible for any of them. Because we have all of these ideas and these notions that trickle down into everything that stem from these purity ideas about expectations of who you're supposed to be without any consideration of asking who you want to be in the first place. So what I recommend that because we can't just verbally declare, I am free of these ideas and narratives and I won't repeat them. We find a new practice that helps us develop a clear and clarified awareness of the things that we're doing that might be that habitual programming that we don't even think about and to spectate ourselves a little bit. And so before we get into uh, reaffirming I am statements, before we get into you know, finding a different way to reject these purity prescriptions that, you know, on on the surface level, we can be like, I'm, I'm not done with that. I reject it. We, we need to develop a new image of the self. Purity culture really roots itself into us by revisioning 
what the self is, okay? And so that starts with there's the separation, right? There's a separation of spirit and body. And so we can recognize that there's an obvious disdain for the body and for the flesh and for the skin and for the physical pleasures and passions. And so we have to go back to the root of who we are. Who am I? Who I am is good. Who I am is an image of God. Who I am is a reflection of love. So we need to first start with I am. I am beautiful. I am wonderful. I am perfect the way that I am. And we start this by really looking at our physical naked self and loving it. And so one of the practices that Dr. Emily Nagoski writes about in her book, Come As You Are, is kind of this meet the clit scenario. And I'm quite fond of it. It's a very simple practice. What you do is you get yourself a mirror and you strip down to nothing. You're in your birthday suit. And if you can, you want this mirror on the floor because you want to sit. And you're going to sit and you're going to open your legs and you're going to look at yourself. You're going to look at all of the beautiful parts that God created. You know, the one thing that I really appreciate when I look at my vulva is how it looks like a flower that is starting to blossom. And so just soak that in for a minute. That's a flower down there, y'all. It's a beautiful flower, a fragrant flower. And this is what I appreciate about Dr. Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are, is she she talks about the things that, you know, maybe women want to talk about, but we don't really talk about. And that's our smell. It's our odor. It's, it's our pheromones. It's our fragrance. And the way that she describes it, it's woodsy, it's musky, you know, it's sweet and it's herbaceous. And I mean, these are all the things that I think we know, don't we? You know, and we notice that it smells differently during different times of the month and depending upon like different foods that we eat. And even our stress levels can affect the way that we smell, you know. And, and I mean, men too. You, you, you can check this out. Just give yourself a whiff under the armpits once in a while when you're feeling sweaty and notice if it changes. And if it changes, I'm going to let you know it's not bad. All of your odor, all of your fragrance, all of your pheromones, all of your smells, all of your lubrications, all of your juices, these are good things. These are beautifully, wonderfully made things that we need for our body for, for a, a variety of different reasons. But what I've come to appreciate is, is the works of these, these women especially who are trying to help other women and other couples overcome these purity prescriptions that get us so locked behind doors that we can't even talk about our smells or how beautiful our vulvas look or how wonderfully magic our vaginas and our uteruses are because we can give birth to life and we can also give birth to death. And so you're sitting in front of this mirror and you are touching yourself. You are opening up your labia. You are touching the folds. Do you find, did you find your clit? Do you know where your clitoris is? Find it. And if you need a map so that you can understand where to look on your terrain, I recommend you pick up Come As You Are by Dr. Emily Nagoski. And I recommend that you get acquainted with your clit. Our clits are magical little organs that we all need to feel blessed by. 
not burdened by, not disgusted by, not embarrassed by. Our clitoris is a stairway to heaven, ladies, and we should be more mindful of that. So this practice really helped me because not only do you learn what you look like, but you learn how to appreciate what you look like. You spend time daily practices in front of this mirror and you find new things about your body that you might have not liked before and you teach yourself to love it and I had an especially hard time doing this um, because I have stretch marks Uh, my firstborn tore my body up and I know I've talked about this before and forever I resented my body but this technique, this just standing in front of myself and rediscovering myself and seeing who I really am is beautiful and wonderfully made, that makes all the difference. And that, if we continue telling ourselves that every day, it's going to be most beneficial to squeezing out that excess purity programming that we don't even need anymore, the ones that we can verbally reject. Now, if we can find a new way to accept our flesh and our body, if we can find a new way to understand that there is supposed to be this beautiful union between body and spirit, then these these influences and these subconscious programs that we have running in the background are going to be removed. And the best part, this isn't just a looking exercise. This is a touching exercise. And that's my favorite part. I was encouraged as a young child to explore my body, to touch myself, to figure out what felt good and what didn't feel good. And I was told this at a very young age. I was four or five because my mom caught me masturbating. She wanted me to do it in private. She didn't want me to do it in the middle of the living room floor on top of my stuffed animal. And so she taught me the importance of understanding what feels good and what feels right and what brings me pleasure. And so not only are you looking at your terrain, you're feeling it. You're feeling the mountains, okay? And, and you're weaving your fingers through the, the bushy forest. And you're touching yourself. Find that clit. Touch it. Rub it. See what intensity you like. See which stroking motion you like. Do you want it circular? Do you want it up and down? What kind of pressure do you want? Only when we understand how to touch ourselves can we tell another person how to touch us. And isn't that what we're after? We're trying to figure out a way to be more comfortable with touch. We want to create new impressions of of what feels good. And we want to break free of these ideas that tell us our body is bad and tell us that sex is bad. So we need to touch ourselves. We need to figure out how to bring joy to ourselves before we can have any kind of expectation that a partner can bring us joy. Like, and this is this is so significantly important and very rarely ever talked about. But, and, and again, my, my mom told me this. And so I was lucky and fortunate enough to know this going into a relationship. There was something I wanted. If there was something I didn't want, if there was something I liked, if there was something I didn't like, I had to let that be known. I wasn't going to just lay there and let someone do whatever they wanted to do to me. I was going to be a participant and what was taking place. And participating means that I'm going to guide your ass, right? Like, I'm going to guide you. I'm going to tell you how to use your fingers. I'm going to tell you how to stroke and which intensity and how much pressure. And these are things that help us learn how to communicate everything, not just our sexual desires. But if we can get to that level where even 
telling our partner, baby, this don't feel good. Baby, I like when you do that. When we can get to that establishment, we create that base foundation for ourselves. That is going to help us out in the long run because now we're going to be, have more confidence in telling people what we want and what we don't want and telling people what we like and what we don't like everywhere. Whether it be what you're ordering for lunch, whether it be how you are interacting at your job every day, whether it be on what kind of creative content you want to publish and produce. We need to use these most foundational practices and let them transform every way that we interact with our reality. So now here's where I've taken this technique into a different level. After you have discovered that you love your body, after that you have developed a new confidence for your body, after you can look at yourself and go, fuck yeah, I'd hit that. I want you to include your partner in this practice and that you're both sitting in front of the mirror. And you're both looking at each other. And maybe you're both touching each other. And you're watching each other give each other pleasure. There is something to be said about watching yourself receive pleasure. Whether you're giving it to yourself or someone else is giving it to you. So that is my little additional oomph to that practice. And where you can make sure that you're including your partner. Because I know that as much as we need to you know, have time for ourselves and to just be able to be alone and contemplate and meditate and and focus on ourselves, we also don't want to exclude our partners. And an erotic evolution needs to include your partner. It's really difficult for one person to sexually deconstruct and not the other. It can create problems. And I'm sure that if you've gone through a religious deconstruction, you've, you've seen similar things. I know people who have become separated or divorced because uh, this religious transformation or a rejection of prior beliefs can really create a path of challenges in a couple, especially if only one person is willing to repent and change their mind. So this is just a technique that I would recommend including your partner in so that they can feel a part of your journey and a part of your erotic evolution. Because while we are trying to cultivate sexual arousal and desire for ourselves, we also don't want to keep our partner in the dark. Enjoy this practice, try this practice, implement this practice, and let me know your feedback on it. If you've tried it, let me know. I want to hear about it. I would I would love to have a conversation with you about it. So another really great way to get in touch with your own body is through something called Sensate Focus Therapy. And this is a form of therapy that was developed by the Masters and Johnson team that utilizes focus on sensory perceptions and sensuality instead of goal-oriented behavior focused on genital and penetrative sex. So simply put, this practice requires nothing more than laying down and perceiving and feeling sensations and thoughts as they come to surface. We're going to focus on breath work. You're going to focus on your breath in and out. And this isn't about sexual arousal. Nothing about this needs to be sexual at all. This is just about feeling my body. I'm going to lay here still and I'm going to focus and I'm going to wait for messages to come to surface. I'm going to wait for my body to talk to me. This is a really great technique that has been modeled and and has been altered in different forms that have been offered by different sex psychotherapists and psychologists, different clinicians that have come out of, you know, sex institutes all over the country. And these variety of techniques can actually help with body image, erectile dysfunction, and a lack of sexual arousal. And this is just an, a mindfulness practice where we're listening to our body. We're feeling our body. We're breathing. And we're waiting. And sometimes things happen, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, suddenly I just noticed my neck hurts really bad or "Mm, 
Do I have a bruise down there on my leg? Or why am I sweating? Or wow, I can really hear my heartbeat. And thoughts are going to come in and they're going to like try and fluster you and clog you and distract you. And that's okay. We want to lay there and we want to just greet the thoughts because what happens, what this beautiful therapy can do is while we're laying there focused on just feeling our feels, things will naturally come to the surface, right? And when things come to the surface, we want to greet them with love and we want to see what they're going to try and reveal to us. And sometimes it could just be, do I need to add something to the grocery list? And you can refocus on your breath in, out, through your nose. Just refocus and swish those thoughts away and then go back to focusing on the body. Now, there is uh, a technique that I have done which implements this idea, but again, it's a partnered practice and laying there together and breathing there together. Like breathing with your partner is actually really erotic and it's kind of beautiful because you're taking in the same air and you're breathing out the same air. And what I really like to do with my husband is to try and sink our breaths. And when we can sink our breaths, it it almost feels like we're sinking our energy with one another. And it almost feels like we're communicating with each other telepathically or through our breath. And we can gauge our breath and, you know, staring into each other's eyes. Sometimes you can put your hands on each other's hearts. There's so many different practices available out there with just sensate focus and breathing that can really strengthen intimacy. And again, it helps with erectile dysfunction, lack of sexual arousal, and overall body image. And if we're finding a new comfort level and laying there naked and observing our body and feeling and perceiving the sensations that our body is sending to us, this helps us. This benefits us. This adds to a new program of realizing I am beautiful. I am wonderfully made. I am a reflection and image of God. There's a similar method that is called the body scan, and it's an activity in which a person lies down and focuses attention on muscle groups, incorporating kind of a squeeze and release exercise. And so you either start with your toes and work your way up, or you can start at your head and work your way down. And in instances where I've done this, I, I do the, the, the tightening and the releasing of the muscles. So first I start with my toes and I point them and I stretch them and I spread my toes as far apart as I possibly can. And then I am mentally telling myself that I'm moving upward into a path. And so I go from my toes and, and now it's my ankles that I'm tensing up. And now it's my calves that I'm tensing up and then releasing. And now it's my thigh muscles that I'm tensing up and I'm releasing. And now I'm in the vulva area and I'm doing my Kegels and I'm squeezing and I'm letting go. And I'm squeezing and I'm letting go. And some people can work on their anus muscles if they would like. Squeezing and letting go. And these are actually practices that are helpful, not just for sexual arousal and desire, but Kegels are pretty important for bladder continence. So just keep that in mind. And so you're working through your body, squeezing and releasing muscles. What do you notice? What are you perceiving? What are you feeling? What sensations are coming to surface? What thoughts are coming to your mind? What is your breath like? What is your heart rate like? These are, these are moments and practices that we incorporate into our day where we are listening to ourselves, where this is self-care. This is giving our body a chance to have peace and rest. And implementing a little bit of these different methods and squeezing and tensing and releasing and relaxing. And again, we're listening to the thoughts that are coming to the surface. What, what thoughts are coming to the surface? In some instances, people who have been victims of sexual trauma, sexual abuse, 
they use this kind of method to re-imprint a new idea of what feels good in their body and what doesn't and remembering the touches that don't feel good and trying to imprint a new idea of what a good touch could feel like, taking control over the body. There's another method that I think is really interesting. And so this technique came out of the University of British Columbia by Dr. Lori Brado and a team of dedicated psychologists, psychiatrists, physicians, nurses, and students. And they facilitated this practice called the raisin in an effort to help introduce, reintroduce, or increase sexual arousal and sexual desire in women. And so this raisin practice is an introductory mindfulness exercise that combines sensate focus with kind of an object goal focus. And it's kind of like a meal meditation that reflects Buddhist practices of mindful eating. And so what you do is, is simple. They use a raisin. And the first part of the process is you look at the raisin and you feel the raisin in your finger and you, what do you notice about it? Observe it. What do you see? What does the texture look like? Describe it. Talk to yourself about what you notice about the raisin. And then you want to do something like smell the raisin. What does it smell like? What does it make you think about? What kind of thoughts come to the surface? Now, Let's touch the raisin against our cheek. What does it feel like? Touch the raisin against your lips and kind of just sensually massage your lip with the raisin. What thoughts are coming to surface? What are you noticing? And is your mouth watering? Do you want to put the raisin in your mouth? Put the raisin in your mouth and just hold it there in your tongue. What are you noticing? What senses, what sensations are you perceiving? What is it making you think? Is it feeling erotic? Is it feeling seductive? Is it feeling silly? You know, let these thoughts come to surface. Now, after you've held it in your mouth, move it around. Move it around with your tongue. What do you notice? Start chewing on it slowly. Are the flavors just exploding in your mouth? Is it a flavor you don't like? Is it a flavor that makes you think of something? Is it a flavor that makes you think of something nostalgic from your past? I mean, when I started reading about this, I immediately started thinking about raisins and, and raisins make me think about kindergarten and um, play and snack time and sitting with my friends and, you know, little things can trickle up to the surface and, and play with that. Just let it come to the surface and think about it and, and greet those thoughts and you're chewing it and, and, and is it so tantalizing and is it delicious and is it flavorful and now swallow it. Now, after this whole process is done, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? Do you feel more relaxed? And, you know, if you don't want to do a raisin, do a grape or do a piece of watermelon, do a strawberry. I wouldn't recommend pomegranate seeds because you're going to stain yourself. But whatever floats your boat, find a piece of food and try and incorporate this into a daily meditative practice and see if it does anything beneficial for you. Now, how is this like mindful eating? What does this have to do with the Buddhists? So to better explain that, I'm going to read something from a book called Living Buddha, Living Christ. It is by Thich Nhat Hanh. He is a Vietnamese monk, and he is a beloved Buddhist teacher in the West. He's a poet, a Zen master, and he was the chairman of the Vietnamese Buddhist Peace Delegation during the Vietnam War, and he was nominated by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for the Nobel Peace Prize. So you might be familiar with his work. Mindful eating is an important practice. It nourishes awareness in us. Children are very capable of practicing with us. In Buddhist monasteries, we eat our meals in silence to make it easier to give our full attention to the food and to the other members of the community who are present. And we chew each morsel of food thoroughly, at least 30 times, to help us be truly in touch with it. Eating this way is very good for digestion. 
Before every meal, a monk or a nun recites the five contemplations. This food is the gift of the whole universe, the earth, the sky, and much hard work. May we live in a way that is worthy of this food. May we transform our unskillful state of mind, especially that of greed. May we eat only foods that nourish us and prevent illness. May we accept this food for the realization of the way of understanding and love. Then we can look at the food deeply in a way that allows it to become real. Contemplating our food before eating it in mindfulness can be a real source of happiness. Every time I hold a bowl of rice, I know how fortunate I am. I know that 40,000 children die every day because of a lack of food and that many people are lonely without friends or family. I visualize them and feel deep compassion. You don't need to be in a monastery to practice this. You can practice at home at your dinner table. Eating mindfully is a wonderful way to nourish compassion and it encourages us to do something to help those who are hungry and lonely. We needn't to be afraid of eating without the TV, radio, newspaper, or a complicated conversation to distract us. In fact, it is wonderful and joyful to be completely present with our food. This is a very difficult practice. Like, I literally tried to do it after I read about the raisin, and I was like, I went back to Living Buddha, Living Christ, because I remembered this part that Han had written about. And I sat there, and I was like, okay, I'm going to like be mindful about eating today. And before I knew it, like I had finished what I was eating and I didn't even get to like soak and marinate in it and like contemplate it. And so it's, it's a practice that I encourage you all to try. Like get that in depth with your eating, like pick one meal. And this is what Lori Brado recommends in her book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness. And so what it is, is take a meal, one meal a day, try it. Even just start with a snack. You might just want to start with a snack and really be present to what you're putting in your mouth. Be present to every chew. Be present to every burst of flavor that hits your tongue. Be present to what you feel on your tongue. What sensations do you feel? Did you get a gritty bite? Did you get a little bit of cartilage? Did you get a little bit of sand on your lettuce? Whatever it is, like be mindful of it and pay attention. And then extend that mindfulness outward and and consider your gratitude for what you have. And this is This is something that if we can put into practice every day can help us learn how to pause and respond and reflect instead of reacting and becoming annoyed and becoming stressed and becoming outraged. This is why the Buddhists eat their food in the way that they do because they know they are eating the food. And so it's just a practice that I recommend. It's kind of like just an aside to help you keep in step with being present to the present moment, being present to what you're doing, being present to the meal. You know, in in our house, we don't actually talk a lot while we're eating. We all dine together and it's all very quiet. And sometimes the kids talk and that's fine. And there's that, how was your day or something interesting? But I mean, I'm really kind of like I'm eating, I'm chewing. I don't want to talk with food in my mouth. It's one of those disgust things that trigger me. Like, I think that's why I don't like eating with people, even though I do like having meals with people, is because people want to talk and then they want to talk with food in their mouth. And I think, well, you know, okay, let's just save the conversation until the end of the meal because usually we only take about 20 minutes to eat, sometimes less. And so mindfulness eating, you're probably going to be eating longer, especially if you're chewing every single bite 30 times like the Buddhists do. You don't have to do that, but slow down and be grateful for the nourishment that you're putting in your body your good body, your beautiful body, your perfect body, your body that was made in the image and reflection of God. So these are just these are just pieces to start, right? This is just the beginning. In order for us to 
learn how to rid ourselves of those feelings of inadequacy. In order to help us take shame and judgment out of the equation, we need to be mindful, right? That's what mindfulness is about. Filling our minds with the knowingness that I am full, I am perfect, I am whole, I am, I am an integrated being of body and spirit, and nothing is foul about my body, nothing is disgusting about my body, nothing is inadequate about my body. It's, it's by being more mindful, by being more full of ourselves in a way that we are fully confident, humbly confident in knowing I am loved by God. I am an integrated whole being. I am made in the image and likeness of God. I have purpose. I am worthy. And slowly helping pull the root rot of the shame and the judgment out of the way that we interact with our reality. And so in a couple of weeks, I'm going to come back to this and I'm going to try and offer you some other antidotes to these anti-sex narratives that we're trying to grow out of. I'm going to offer you more ways to embody eroticism post-purity culture. So I encourage you to stick around, and I would really appreciate your feedback on this. And if you try any of these exercises or practices, or if you have problems or concerns or worries about them, please reach out to me. You can find me on Facebook at Danielle Kingstrom, Twitter and Instagram at dkingstrom. You can find me on OnlyFans.com slash NakedTreeAdvisor if you want a little little bit of additional anonymity and you want to reach out and ask some questions. Um, and I would be happy to receive your feedback and go from there. And if you have any other questions that you want me to address and what kind of purity culture ideas have infected you and you are looking for a way to kind of break that down, reach out to me and let me know. As always, I thank you for compassionately considering my perspective and Thank you.